We're going to be looking at verses 27 through 26, mostly. As you're turning there, um, really are beginning this morning to look at a sermon that Jesus preached in Luke 6. Um, and, and really, as we get into it, just want to encourage us, what a blessing that we have God's word written down for us, that we can see uh, what must have been one of the greatest sermons ever preached, preached by the one who came to save the world, the one that the gospel proclaims, proclaims the gospel, and we have it written down. We get to observe it. We get to behold God through it. We get to study it. We get to spend time in it, and that's a joy. That is a delight. That is a uh, blessing that has been given to us, and so as we go through his sermon in the next uh, several weeks, encourage you to just Listen to him. Uh, go and read through it on your own and just listen in your heart to what the Lord says to us in his word. But I want to read it uh, to you. If you'll stand as I read, I'm going to read verses 17 through 26. <clears throat> and he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich. For you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word that you've entrusted to us. And we come to you needy. We need you. In this time, we need you to help us. We need you to search our hearts. We need you to help us to believe, to receive the truth of your word into our hearts. Give us faith, Lord, we pray. Just as seed goes into good soil and produces a harvest, we pray that your word would go into our hearts and produce a harvest that glorifies you. We need you for that, Lord. We are desperate for you. And so we ask you to help us in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus tells us that he has come to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then later in Luke, in Luke 19, Jesus says of himself, I've come to seek 
and save the lost. I have come to seek and save the lost. And what we see in the text before us here today are three things. Jesus has compassion to save. Jesus has the power to save. And Jesus brings the message to save. First, Jesus has compassion to save. It says that a great crowd comes together from all around. There are, uh, there's a great crowd from, of his disciples. There's a great crowd from Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. It says, he came down with them, verse 17, and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. There's this great crowd who's come together. Now, if you go a bit further in Luke, the numbers of people who are coming to see and hear Jesus are extraordinary. If you go to Luke chapter 9, it says that there are 5,000 men plus women and children. So numbers probably somewhere around 20,000. If you go further to Luke chapter 12, verse 1, it says that there are so many thousands gathered together that they were trampling one another. So just crowds who are coming together because of Jesus, to see Jesus, to hear Jesus. We're not certain how many have gathered in this circumstance, but there are many. Luke tells us that there was a great crowd of his disciples. Those are the ones who are following him, his followers. There's a great crowd of those who are following Jesus, those who are learning from him, his disciples. And so that crowd alone would have been great. There were many people now, his fame is spreading, many people who have heard about Jesus. They're beginning to follow him and believe in him and listen to him. And that crowd of his disciples is assembled. But that's not all of the crowd. It says there's a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. Now, uh, Judea here would be referring to all of Israel. Jerusalem being the religious and cultural center of the nation. And then it says that, that there are a, a great multitude of people also from Tyre and Sidon, the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. Now those cities were important cities in Phoenicia. In the Old Testament, they were uh, important seacoast cities. And they were destroyed because of the prophecy that was given in Ezekiel 26 through 28. And now were these cities of great immorality. We might say what happens in Tyre and Sidon stays in Tyre and Sidon. We know of cities like that, right? Cities that that we even call uh, sin city. Places of immorality where, where we boast in the truth that what happens there stays there. You don't have to tell anybody about it. Well, that's kind of the, the situation happening in Tyre and Sidon. Great immorality happening in these cities. And it says many have come. Many have come from Judea, Jerusalem, and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. Why have they come? Why have all these people come together? Well, Luke tells us in verse 18, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. To hear him and be healed of their diseases. Now, when, when Luke places to hear him first, he's stressing the importance of Jesus' teaching ministry. 
They have come to hear from the Lord. They've come to hear from this man who is preaching and teaching things they've never heard before. Luke 5, verse 15 says, But now even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. And so they gather here again in Luke 6. And what do we see as the people gather and there are thousands and thousands of these people gathered? What do we see in Jesus? We see compassion. Compassion for the people. Those who came from Tyre and Sidon were were probably pagan people. People of, of immorality. People who did not believe. And yet Jesus' love and compassion has no bounds Pagans and common people and religious people are coming together to hear him and to be healed by him. Verse 18 says, those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. Now again, Luke uh, makes a distinction between Jesus casting out demons and Jesus healing the sick. It's an important distinction. In Jesus' day and in our day, there are those who would uh, put the two together and say, well, you're sick, you must be demon-possessed, or maybe you've sinned, you've done something wrong, that's why you're sick. And Jesus makes a distinction between those two things. He shows us that's not necessarily the case. He casts out demons and he heals the sick. And in compassion, he helps the weary, bringing relief and rest to the troubled hearts of those who come to him. Those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. It goes on and says, and all the crowds, all the crowds sought to touch him. Can you imagine this massive crowd and they've they've heard about Jesus they've they've some of them probably seen the things Jesus is doing and here they are and they're just longing they're just eager they're just if we if we could just get to this man everything will be right he can help us he will help us Jesus has compassion to save we also see Jesus has the power to save. It goes on. All the crowds sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. It's just such a phenomenal statement about Jesus. Power came out from him and healed them all. Incredible picture, incredible and hopeful picture of Jesus. We've seen this already as we've, as we've worked our way to this point in Luke. In Luke 4, 18 and 19, Jesus declares that he, the Christ, has come. And then in 4, 31 through 37, it says that he powerfully heals the demon-possessed. In 4, 38 through 41, it says that he healed many people. In chapter 5, verses 12 through 16, it says he cleanses a leper. In chapter 5, verses 17 through 26, he forgives and heals the paralytic. In chapter 6, verses 6 through 11, it shows how he heals a man with a withered hand. In Luke 4, 36, it says they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. Power was coming out of him to heal. In chapter 5, verse 17, it says the power of the Lord was with him to heal. This is just incredible God power. The power of the Lord working through Jesus to heal those who have come. He has compassion. He has compassion for the people. He has compassion to save and he has the power to do it. 
He has the power to back up his love. He has the power to accomplish his plan. Incredible power. And whether these people who have gathered together by the thousands have come with unrighteous or impure or self-seeking motives or not, Luke, Luke doesn't mention that. He doesn't tell us. He doesn't refer to it at any point. He wants us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the one who is compassionate and the one who is powerful whose power is able to heal all and whose heart is filled with compassion toward those who come to him. I would ask you this season, this Christmas season, what are you hoping is going to bring you joy and salvation? What is it you're hoping in? What is it that you think about? What is it that that occupies your mind and you're just thinking... If this happens, whether it's you know, decorations or, or family or gifts or gift giving, you're looking to that, you're hoping in that to bring you joy and salvation. Whatever it is, it's incapable of doing it. It can't. It doesn't have the power and it doesn't have the compassion that Jesus has. It can't do what only Jesus can do. Jesus has compassion to save you and Jesus has the power to save you. And that brings us to the third thing. Jesus brings the message. Jesus brings the message to save. Jesus preaches a sermon at this point beginning at verse 20. And there are some who think um, that this is Luke's account of the Sermon on the Mount that we have in Matthew 5 through 7. There are others who think this is a different sermon that, that says similar things, that Jesus says similar things in this sermon, but it's a different sermon because it says, uh, it, verse 17, he came down with them and stood on a level place. So this is not on a mountain, but on a level place. And so some refer to this as the Sermon on the Plain and Matthew 5 through 7 as the Sermon on the Mount. Regardless, there's, uh, there's some evidence possibly towards both. There's arguments for both. The sermons are similar, certainly, but there's also differences. One difference is Luke gives us four Beatitudes and Matthew records eight Beatitudes. Now we're going to spend some time this week looking at um, the first beatitude. As we go through these this week and next week, we're going to look at the beatitude and then the corresponding woe together. So Jesus gives uh, four beatitudes and then four woes that correspond to the beatitudes. That word beatitude meaning blessedness. And each of the four here and each of the eight in Matthew, Jesus begins, blessed are. Some translate that as happy are. Blessed, happy are you. And so as we go through, we're going to look at the beatitude and then look at the corresponding woe. Today we're just going to look at the first. So we'll be looking at verse 20 and verse 24. Let's look together at those And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And then verse 24, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Blessed are you who are poor, woe to you who are rich. What is Jesus saying here? What does he mean when he says this? Because what it sounds like is, if you're poor, 
you get to go to heaven. But if you're rich, you don't. That's how it reads. What does he mean by that? What does he mean by blessed, happy are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God? That's an important thing to have. That's salvation. So blessed are you who are poor. You, you're saved. But woe to you are, who are rich because you've received your consolation. But understand what Jesus is saying. Let's look first at a couple of verses to give us perspective on Jesus' preaching. In Luke 4, 43, Jesus says this, or Luke writes this, but he said, Jesus said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. I must preach the good news of the kingdom. That's why I came. I was sent for this purpose. I came to preach the good news of the kingdom. Jesus is telling us that his preaching is the good news of the kingdom of God. It's the gospel. His preaching is gospel-saturated. The preaching that he does is gospel preaching, good news preaching, the good news of the kingdom. Ultimately, all of Jesus' preaching is pointing to the truth that he states in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So this teaching, this sermon cannot conflict with those truths. It must be the good news of the kingdom and point to Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to the Father. Because of what Jesus came to do. That's what he preaches. In other words, Jesus can't be saying you're not blessed unless you perfectly fulfill these beatitudes in your life. That wouldn't be gospel. That wouldn't be good news. Because there's none of us that can do that. Rather, we ought to read them as encouragement to those who believe, those who are poor and hungry and weeping and the hated. So how do we do that? How do we understand the Beatitudes in light of this? Blessed are you who are poor. Woe to you who are rich. How's that good news? It's true that Jesus has some hard things to say when he teaches on the financially rich. If you would uh, to look at um, Luke 18, 18 through 30, it's the story of the rich young ruler. This man comes to Jesus. How do I get to heaven? What do I need to do to be saved? How do I get eternal life? Jesus says, well, obey the commands. Love God. This guy responds, I've done all the commands. I've obeyed those from my youth. I've done it. Jesus says to him, well, there's one thing you lack. Go and sell all your possessions and give them to the poor, and then you'll have treasure in heaven. And Luke tells us in Luke 18, the guy goes away sad because he had great wealth. And at that point, Jesus, knowing that he is sad, says this, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now here's, that's a phenomenal 
crazy statement that Jesus makes, okay? There's, there's people gathered there. People hear him say that. It would be like if I just started the sermon, and that's how I started this morning. Hey, if you're poor, you get to go to heaven. If you're rich, sorry. When we, when we read those words, honestly, when we read those words that Jesus said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, we ought to, at that part, start getting nervous. And start wondering, what do you mean, Jesus? What do you mean by that? And then when we go to the next sentence and he says, for it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. At that point, our nervousness ought to transition into what is going on? And how in the world am I going to get to heaven? Because, like it or not, you're the rich. I'm the rich. We're sitting in a warm room right now and it's freezing outside. You drove here in a car. You have a home to live in. You have food that's on your table three or more times a day. We are the rich of the world. And so if we read, come to the text like this, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And we're not at least wondering, what are you saying, Jesus? We're not hearing the text. We're not listening to Jesus while we read. That's a massive statement. Now, now some people have uh, just said, well, you know, he doesn't mean camel and an eye of a needle there was actually in jerusalem this gate and they called it the eye of a needle and what happened have you heard this okay so what would happen is camels would come up to the eye of the needle people would lead their camels up to the eye of the needle and they built this eye of the needle very strategically so what would happen was the camels had to get down on their knees see picture of humility and They had made it so you can't have anything on the camel's back. So what Jesus is saying is you had to remove all of the stuff. Get rid of all the stuff off the camel. And then the camel's got to scoot underneath this eye of the needle gate. That's not what he means. Jesus says it is easier. It's more likely that a camel is going to find its way through the eye of a needle than it is that you will find your way into heaven if you are rich. That is a hard saying. And we know he's not talking about some gate because in Luke 18, after he says that, and in Matthew's account, after he says that, do you know what the disciples say? What? Who then can be saved? How is it possible for any of us to be saved? And Jesus says, with man, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. God can do anything. God can make a camel go through the eye of a needle if he wants to make a camel go through the eye of a needle. He can make it happen. Camels can go underneath gates on their own strength. Camels can't go through the eye of a needle on their own strength. Jesus says God can do it. God can make that happen. Jesus isn't saying to the rich young ruler or to us that people who possess a lot of money can't go to heaven and those who don't have money can. He's saying that those who have wealth are going to have 
more things to put their trust and hope in. They're more likely to hope in their money or stuff than those who don't. But regardless, it's God and God alone who can do it. Only God can get you through the eye of a needle. Only God can get you to heaven. Only God can do that. So what does Jesus mean here? Who are the poor that Jesus refers to in Luke 6.20? Whoever it is, whoever the poor are, theirs is the kingdom of God. That's what he says. Whoever he means by poor, theirs is the kingdom. They get God. They get heaven. They get to be his people. And that understanding helps shape our understanding of who the poor are are, or conversely, who the rich are. In Matthew's account of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins the Beatitudes similarly. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of heaven is synonymous with kingdom of God. It's the same thing. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I think Jesus is saying the same thing here. The poor are those who have believed. They are poor in that they have forsaken all to follow Christ. They're not trusting in their works or their abilities to get them to heaven. They're not like many of the Pharisees who are trusting in themselves. When Jesus says, woe to you who are rich... For you've received your consolation. He's speaking to those who are self-righteous. Those who are seeking to be accepted by God by their own righteousness. So to be poor in spirit is the opposite of pride. In fact, in uh, Proverbs, that that word poor is uh, the opposite of pride. It's the opposite of what is ingrained in us which is self-reliance. Over and over, we just, we're brought up thinking, I can do it myself. I can do this myself. In fact, uh, on Thursday, Shauna and I uh, went out for the evening and uh, Sam Wild, uh, one of the girls that attends the church here, was watching all five of our boys. I haven't seen her since, but um, <laughs> the, uh, we go away, we come back, and she's telling us our, our youngest son, Judah, um, broke his arm last weekend, and uh, that's not the story. Um, and so, um, so she, she's getting them ready for bed, and here's Judah, one arm, trying to put his pajama pants on, and Sam, very nicely saying, "I can help you with that. You want some help with that?" And Judah is literally weeping saying over and over, I can do it myself. I can do it myself. I can do it myself. And here's Sam saying to him, I can help you. I can take care of this for you. I can do this for you. And in tears, struggling in his inability, saying over and over and over, I've got this. I can do this myself. That is self-reliance. That's pride. That's us apart from Christ. That's what it means to be rich. That's who he's talking to when he says the rich is those who are saying, I've got this. I've got what I want in this world. I can do this myself. I don't need help from the outside. I don't need you. It's pride. 
Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor, but woe, woe to you who are rich. Those who are poor in spirit are those who are coming and saying, I am powerless in myself. Those who are coming saying, I am needy. Those who are coming saying, I'm spiritually bankrupt. I'm helpless. I'm I'm unclean. I am morally unclean. I have no right to come before you, God. I'm unworthy of you. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. So Jesus is not referring to the economic poor of the world, but to believers. Those who are humble, those who are poor in spirit, those those who are coming to him, knowing that they're desperate for him. And he says to you, yours is the kingdom of God. You who depended on me, you who trusted in me, you who didn't, you didn't trust in yourself, you came knowing you needed me, yours is the kingdom. You get the kingdom, you get God. The ones who are hoping, not in this world, but in Christ, they're not relying on the things of this world, but on Christ who overcomes the world. Jesus says in John 16, 33, I've I've spoken these things to you so that in me you'll have peace. In the world you're gonna have trouble, but be of good cheer or take heart. I've overcome the world. Those who are poor in spirit believe that. Trust in that. Blessed are you who are poor, you who are humble, for yours is the kingdom of God. You get God But woe, he says, woe to you who are rich. Woe to you who are proud and trusting in yourself for you have received your consolation. Like those hypocrites he speaks of in in Matthew 6. Those who love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. They have received their reward. They've received their consolation. Jesus says, woe to you, you get God's wrath. But ask you, which is true of you? Are you trusting, are you trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ? On the cross, the truth of Jesus coming And bringing the message of salvation is that he became poor. Jesus says, blessed are the poor for theirs is the kingdom. He became poor to make us rich. So that those of us who come to him poor and needy and believe are blessed and given the kingdom. Are made rich in Christ. With him forever are you trusting in the finished work of jesus on the cross have you come to him come to see that apart from jesus you are hopelessly lost and forever separated from god have you believed in jesus the way the truth and the life if that's you if you've come humbly to him then you know his grace that's present tense you know it not i knew it I know his grace. I'm acquainted with 
him and I'm acquainted with his grace. If that's true of you, then Jesus says, yours is the kingdom of God. You get God. We're going to see as we go through the Beatitudes. In this world, you may get other things as well. Difficulties, hardships, but Jesus' hopeful words are, you've got God. You get God. Yours is the kingdom. But I would ask you, are you the rich that Jesus refers to? The proud person who continues to trust in self and in what you're doing to get you to heaven. Jesus' words for you are, you have received your consolation. What that means is, this is as good as it gets for you. It won't get better than this. This is as good as your eternity will ever get. Your eternal life will not be joyful. It will be without Christ. It will be without God. But the hope of the gospel is still true. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, but come to him. Believing in him, believing in him, and and, and you'll be saved. Jesus has compassion to save you. Jesus has the power to save you. And Jesus brings the message of salvation that he has come. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Get the kingdom. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace. I pray right now that you'd search our hearts. Each one of us, Lord, you alone, you know. You know who the poor are and you know who the rich are. You know who have come to you trusting in you. Those who have received your grace have been set free from bondage to sin and given the kingdom of God. You know those who are rich, trusting in themselves, trusting pridefully that they can do enough supposed good deeds to impress you, the righteous and eternal God. You know, Lord, and I pray that you would reveal to them the truth of the gospel, that you'd set them free, that you would give them faith, that they wouldn't be ashamed to admit that they need you, that they need to be forgiven for their sins, that they wouldn't be afraid to come clean before you, but that you would graciously grant them repentance, that they would humble themselves, come to you, repent of their sins, and enjoy, receive eternal life. I pray that you would be glorified in Christ's name. Amen.